and uh, and I started thinking upon what are the conditions that are necessary for revival. And we talked a little bit about it in our introduction this morning, uh, but that doesn't really get into what's what the work that has to be done. Uh, because I think sometimes we want to just show up to church and have revival just fall on our heads. Uh, but there's no scriptural precedent for that happening. Um, effort has to be put forth. And so we're going to look at that this morning and see what are these conditions that are necessary to bring about revival. And I think there are conditions that have to be met if we're really going to experience revival. Um, and, and so that doesn't say that there's not any one given thing that we do. Um, it, it may be something much broader in scope, but we're going to look at a few examples that we have in Scripture today. Uh, I'm going to take my reading text from the book of Lamentations, Lamenta- Lamentations chapter 3, and, uh, and we're going to start in verse 39. And it says, Wherefore doth, doth a living man complain? a man for the punishment of his sins. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our heart with hands unto God in the heavens. We have transgressed and have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. Thou hast covered thine anger and persecuted us. Thou hast slain. Thou hast not pitied. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud, that our prayer should not pass through. Thou hast made us as the off-scouring and refuse in the midst of the people. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare is come upon us. Desolation and destruction. Mine eye runneth down with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Mine eye trickleth down and ceaseth not without any intermission till the Lord look down and behold from heaven. And that's where I want to stop, right there. And Jeremiah is expressing a few things here in this, uh, in this third chapter of the book of Lamentations. And, and you notice the first thing he says, and we're going to start in this 39th verse. The first thing he says is, Wherefore, or why, does a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? And so we want to, we want to use that as our jumping off point, And we would like to actually take our thoughts to some other revivals that took place in Scripture. Because that's what he's longing for, isn't it? He's longing for a revival. But he also acknowledges that God's not going to just overlook our sins either, is he? Uh, And and, and we look just for a moment here in this third chapter of of, uh, of Lamentations and look at some of the things that he says. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. That's called repentance, isn't it? Let us lift up our heart with hands unto God in the heavens. That's a worship service, isn't it? Lord, 
Then he gets into the meat of it, doesn't he? We have transgressed. We have rebelled. He doesn't gloss over these things. He shines a light on the darkest things, doesn't he? And then he talks about God's response to that. God's not covered his anger, or thou, thou, hast, covered, thou hast covered with anger and persecuted us. Thou hast slain us and has not pitied us. God's withholding his mercy from him or from them, hadn't he? God, that loving kindness that God has that he displays toward man uh, for their rebellion and for their transgressions, God has retained his mercy from them and instead poured wrath out upon them. So much so that not even their prayers can get through the cloud that he has put in place between heaven and earth. And that's a good segue, because we read over it in 1 Kings about Elijah and the revival that Elijah brought forth into the land, of, into Israel. Israel had split at this time, and it was established under Jeroboam, and their religion was idolatry. Ahab is the king, and Ahab, it says, walked in the ways of Jeroboam, his father. And, uh, and he made Israel to sin. Uh, now, in response to that, in the 17th chapter of, the, of 1 Kings, Elijah goes up, uh, Elijah prays uh, in the very first verse of that, and it says, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And it shall be that when thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there, and the ravens, and in the sixth verse, that was the fourth verse, and in the sixth verse it says, And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And now that's something that's very amazing there, because uh, Jeremiah talks about the fact that God has covered uh, the, 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 uh, the gap between heaven and earth, so say, with a cloud that's so thick that the prayers that are uttered by the saints of God, they cannot get beyond it. And here we're going to read about Elijah. And Elijah has a prayer that there will be no rain or dew manifest itself on the earth until he says so and God let it be, didn't it? And it came to pass that that was such. Now, I'm thankful over the last couple of days that we've gotten some rain because it was getting very dry. And, you know, once you go through a period of a dry spell, you remember what a blessing rain is, don't you? Because without it, there is no food that comes forth. Uh, we all, you know, you, you eventually, uh, and if no food comes forth for a long enough time, that's when famine sets in. And, uh, and they're, that's what they're warning about this fall. They're saying there's going to be famine this fall. Uh, not, I, I, don't, I haven't heard them say that for this country, but in other parts of the world they've been saying that that's a possibility. Uh, but, but if you don't get rain for long enough, you're going to experience a famine in the land. And that's why, uh, and certainly uh, during Jacob's day, that that's what they experienced in Egypt and in Canaan. And, uh, and so he goes up and he says, that's it. He says, uh, uh, you know, as, a, as the Lord God liveth before whom I stand. 
There shall be no dew nor rain these years. So they were going to go for multiple years without rain. And it's in response to the sin that Israel was committing, wasn't it? And here's something that's amazing to me, and I don't know that I've ever thought about it or have ever, ever really, it's never stood out to me, let me say it that way. But God chose an unclean thing to bring, to, to provide sustenance, didn't he? For Elijah, as he dwelt there by the brook, he, he chose an unclean animal to provide him substance, didn't he? He said, a ravens, the ravens will bring the uh, bread and flesh. Uh, and, it's, and here in the fourth verse, he says, I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. Now, that's an, if you go by the law, that's an unclean animal. Uh, because that's an animal that is a scavenger. It, 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 it lives off carrion. Uh, it was not a, an animal that would have been deemed clean, like a dove or a turtle dove would have been, or, or that would be a pigeon. Uh, it was not a clean animal. And, and so it's kind of you know, strange here that God says, I'm going to provide for you using this unclean thing here by the brook, by the brook Kidron. And they did. The the, the ravens, every morning and every evening, they would bring him bread and flesh is what the the Scripture teaches us there. And so that, that kind of struck my curiosity. Why in the world would God use an unclean animal to provide for Elijah here in by the brook Kidron? And then a verse of Scripture dawned on me. What God hath cleansed, call not thou common or unclean. Because who was God going to send Elijah to once that brook dried up? It wasn't to any of the widows in Israel. But to a Gentile, wasn't it? He was teaching a lesson. I believe he's teaching a lesson to Israel just by the mere fact of having ravens feed him here in the wilderness. Remember the, 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 where he's gotten with his own people. They've, they're so far away that Elijah has, 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 has uh, prayed for uh, a drought to take place and God has caused that to come to pass. And so we get down into the 18th verse of uh, the 17th chapter of Israel and we see uh, a miraculous thing happen. That widow woman that, uh, that Elijah goes to to stay with who had just a little meal and a cruise of oil who when the first time Elijah met her she said we were just about to to make ourselves cakes and then die. Uh, that's how they. That's 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 how uh, how how little sus, uh, substance they had. Uh, he had just come from having the ravens provide for him in the morning and in the evenings to coming to this widow woman, and he says, "Don't worry, that will get us through." Doesn't he? Now, I'm paraphrasing that, but he says that little bit of cruise uh, of oil in that cruise and that little bit of meal it will not cease to provide for us for the rest of the time that we need it, and it didn't. And I'm paraphrasing that. Of course, but in that course of time, 
And that woman demonstrated her faith by going and making a cake for Elijah first and bringing it to him. And, uh, and, and then that, that lasted them throughout the time. But, uh, but tragedy befell her son, and her son died. And so we read about something that happens here uh, with Elijah. Uh, it's something amazing that takes place, and it's the first time in Scripture that somebody is brought back from the dead. Her son, which is her voice in the world that they lived in back then. And without her son, she would have been left voiceless, wouldn't she? In the 18th verse, it says, She cried out to Elijah, and he said, What and, and said, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance, to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom, and he carried him up into a loft where he abode, and laid him upon his own bed. There's a grief of a parent that I hope I never come to know. <laughs> My grandmother shared a little bit about that because she, before she passed away, she had buried three. One was stillborn, and two died of cancer while she was still living. And then my mother and my aunt Janice, she, they're still living. And, but she would talk about how hard it was burying her children before her time and and uh, and she would say how she just didn't feel like it was right that she had to do that but we don't know God's not a respecter of persons is he we don't know when we're going to get called out of the walks of this life and so uh, it, it may be before it may be later we don't know and that's why it's imperative of us to get our relationship right with God this this woman is blaming Elijah. She's saying, how come you've come to us and, uh, and, and you've told us these things, but instead what you've done is you've remembered our sin and you've slain my son as a punishment for it. Elijah takes him up, lays him down, and, 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 and stretches himself out on him three times. He calls out unto the Lord, and, and, the, and, and it says this, and he says, he makes this request in the 21st verse. O my Lord, o Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. Now, I want you to understand something here. Elijah is making an acknowledgement. Now, a lot of the Christian world today actually denies this fact. Uh, that when the when you die, your soul continues to exist, and it continues to exist somewhere else. Elijah knew that. Uh, Elijah makes this request, O oh Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. It's not still there anymore because it's left him, hasn't it? This idea that when the body dies, the soul remains in it and it's just sleeping is folly. Elijah knew that wasn't true. And if you're here today and you're lost and you're undone, uh, you better get right with God because uh, it is once appointed unto man to die and then after that, the judgment. Or as Jesus taught in the... In the, in the, uh, in the uh, 
uh, what I view as a parable, but a lot of people don't view it as a parable, uh, in the, uh, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, Lazarus died, and the angels carried him into Abraham's bosom. And that's an idiom for heaven. Uh, and so as immediately upon his death, he is carried into heaven uh, by the angels of God. Uh, and I believe for every saint of God, there are angels that are sitting there waiting for the moment that they draw their last breath, that they may take that living soul and take it back to God who gave it. But the rich man died too, didn't he? And just in the same manner, the angels would have taken his soul. And the scriptures tell us that he lifted up his eyes in torment, being in hell. You see, contrary to popular belief, there are no parties in hell. (laughs) There are no parties when you're being punished. And in hell, you'll be punished for eternity. That's what it is. Heaven is the land of everlasting joy and hell is a land of everlasting torment and punishment. And why is that? Because you sought not the opportunity to have your punishment absolved. Jesus died on on the cross that you wouldn't have to pay that price. But God heard Elijah's prayer and the child came into him. Now this is the second time, isn't it? Because God heard his, heard his words when he said it's not going to rain for years and no dew for years. And here he, uh, uh, God, he, he begs God that uh, this child would be revived. And he's revived, isn't he? Now this is not the revival in the sense that we're looking for revival. This is somebody who was dead and is now alive again. Uh, This was a lot like Lazarus when Jesus stood there before the tomb and he said, roll away the stone. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus would have re-entered his body. And I'll tell you, I believe even even a more miraculous resurrection happened there with Lazarus because Lazarus's flesh would have had to have been renewed, wouldn't it? Remember what they said? It's four days and he stinketh. Decay had set in. Corruption had set in. Jesus is greater than all the corruption in the world. (laughs) And so this is the backstory. Now listen to what this woman says in the 24th verse. He says, this woman says, And the woman said to Elijah, Now, I, now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the, tr- the word of God, or the word of the Lord, is thy mouth, in thy mouth is truth. And so she sees that, that miracle take place um, that happened there uh, with a Gentile, I may point out. And now we get to the period of revival. And it's going to take place on Mount Carmel. And a lot of us are familiar with Mount Carmel, but for those who aren't, we'll just rehash a little bit of it. Elijah goes up on, uh, he goes to Ahab and he issues a a challenge to Ahab, doesn't he? And I'm going to paraphrase as much of this as I can in, in the interest of time. He goes up and he challenges Ahab and he says, Ahab, he said, why don't you call together all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of the grove or the prophetesses of the grove and, and you call them forth and we will determine who is 
God. And here in the 21st verse, this is where uh, he makes the challenge. And Elijah came unto all the people because he had declared he wanted all the people present to find out as we make this determination about who really is God. Because here you are, Israel, as a nation, and you declare that Baal is God, and I'm here before you, and I declare that Jehovah is God, and we're going to determine who really is God here on top of Mount Carmel today. And he asks this question to the people there of Israel. How long will you be hot between two opinions? I think this is why. I believe it was Paul in the New Testament wrote, Mark them which sow divisions among you. <laughs> there ought be no division in the Lord's house. <laughs> about who is worthy of worship and who's worthy of praise. It's Jesus Christ who's worthy of all worship and praise because He's the one and the only one who's completed the works necessary for the redemption of all mankind. And it's not His will that any should perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked and neither should His children. And so we see here uh, that Elijah calls them together. And he makes that challenge and that proclamation. And so there's a four things I'd like to point out here. The first thing that's necessary for a revival to take place, I believe there should be a desire for a restored, whatever you want to call it, a restored, a renewed, a healed relationship with God. And I think, I, think, I think that's the motivation behind Elijah asking God for a drought. I think that's the motivation behind God's preserving Elijah. Or Elijah. But he gets to this moment and he's going to share his desire. Let's, let's figure it out once and for all who's God. We live in a day and an age where it's become clouded amongst society about who is God or even if God exists. Now they hadn't delved that far into depravity yet, had they? But they were in idolatry. But they had not denied that a God, a standard, was necessary. God is the standard by which we'll be judged. Jesus Christ is that standard. His righteousness is the standard. And, uh, and so uh, uh, that's, what, uh, that's the only thing that will get you into heaven is if the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed onto your account. And so here he says, let's figure it out. And so he says... You prophets go first. Prophets of Baal. You all go first. And so they, they, they prepared their altar. They prepared their sacrifice. They laid their sacrifice on the altar. And the, the, and the, uh, the stipulations of the challenge was this. Whosoever God uh, consumes their sacrifice by fire, he's God. And the prophets of Baal cried out from the morning until midday, and uh, and 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 no response came. Uh, and then uh, and then 
I'm going to use a uh, I'm going to use a modern phrase for what's happening there. Then Elijah begins to troll the prophets of Baal, doesn't he? Oh, he's probably asleep. You guys just need to call upon him louder. He's probably on a journey. He's probably this. He's probably that. And Elisha's really making mockery of them and poking fun of them because they believed in a delusion. Then it's Elisha's turn. And now I want you to listen... I, we always, I think we sometimes gloss over this, but I want to I point out the things that Elijah did that led to revival. Verse 30. The first thing Elijah does when it's his turn is he says, come near <laughs> to all the people. And all the people come in and they gather around Elijah. The next thing he did is the second step that I think is necessary for a true revival. And I think this is why the churches used to get preached to for a week before the, before the evangelical sermons ever started back in the day. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. That's, that's my second thing, is repairing the damage that was done to the relationship with God. And I believe it was manifested in the fact that the altar of the Lord lie in ruins in those days. This is applicable to when the children of Israel came out of Babylon and the whole city of Jerusalem lie in ruins and they had to rebuild the temple and the wall. But you've got to start the process of repair, don't you? And so we should really say, God, what is it in our lives that's got us separated from you? And once God shows those things, repair those things, fill in those breaches and those voids, and come and, 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 and worship God. And there's a process here. We're going to get into it. But he repairs the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Next, he takes 12 stones, and he's going to tell us how he did that. He takes 12 stones, and here's what he does. Is he doesn't leave out any tribe, does he? He includes the whole of Israel, even though it's divided. He takes 12 stones because Jacob had 12 sons. According to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And so he repaired the altar. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And then we know what he did after that. He prepared the wood, 
He prepared the sacrifice. He laid the sacrifice upon the altar. And he asked, and he prayed. And God rained down fire. And it consumed the sacrifice, showing that God had accepted his sacrifice. And it burned up all the wood. And it evaporated all the water, didn't it? I mean, if you're talking about, it says lapped up all the water, but heat causes water to evaporate. And so you see here that that repairing needs to happen. And we look in the day of Hezekiah and we see the exact same thing happening. Hezekiah, in the first year of his reign... In the first month, he opens the doors of the Lord's house. Notice here, in both of these instances, what happened? He sent out feelers, didn't he? Elijah wanted all the children of Israel gathered together. Hezekiah sent out letters to all the children of Israel. Now, not at this time yet, because he's still doing it with just Judah and Benjamin, but he's going to do it to the rest of Israel in in the next chapter. But here, what he does is he opens the doors to the house of the Lord and repairs them. See, here's the same thing. We've got to repair the relationship that we have with God if we really want revival, don't we? And he brought the priests and the Levites and gathered them together into the east street. And he said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves. And that's the third part that I would like to talk about, is we've got to repair the relationship with God, but we've got to sanctify ourselves for the purpose of worshiping God, don't we? Now, there's ultimate sanctification, but ultimate sanctification is performed by God when he changes this body in the blink of an eye. In a twinkling in a blink of an eye. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. That's the verse. But we've got to sanctify ourselves, don't we? Remember when Moses was up on the mountain and God said, I'm going to do something miraculous uh, in a couple days, but you need to get down off of the mountain and then during those two days sanctify the people so that they're prepared for the miracle they're about to witness. We want to come into God's house and witness God work miracles, but we don't want to put forth the effort to sanctify ourselves before we come into God's house. I'm fitting a week's worth of preaching in this morning. (laughs) I knew I would get him. But we've got to sanctify ourselves. And, and, And here they had to sanctify the house of the Lord because of the filthiness that had been brought in it. And that was what they did on the first month. And now they began this the first day of the first month. The very first day of Hezekiah's reign, this is what they started doing. And by the 16th day of that month, they made an end. And then the next chapter, we read about Hezekiah. And Hezekiah takes this vision for a brand, for a, for a, a keeping of the Passover that is in line with Scripture in the way that God commanded the Passover be kept. And so he sent out letters to all the other uh, nations. But look at this. He didn't gloss over what they had done uh, that was against God that caused 
that caused the nest, that caused the damaged uh, relationship with God. Uh, he didn't overlook it. Uh, instead, he reminds them of it. Uh, in the, and we're going to look in Second Chronicles thirty-two. And uh, no, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Let me back up. Sorry, we're going to look at second. We're going to look in thirty at the beginning here first. And he takes counsel and he sends those letters out. It was delayed. That was the point I wanted to show. This this desire that Hezekiah had to have this Passover, he wanted to do it immediately upon the finish of of the sanctification of the temple, but he couldn't because the priests, there were not enough priests that were sanctified that were capable of doing the work. They had to get the Levites to help for the one that they did that just that just was concerning uh, the uh, the. uh, Benjamin and Judah. And so he was going to call in the rest of the, the, the tribes of Israel uh, to observe the Passover, which would require sacrifices to be made for atonement to be, uh, to be gained. Uh, and so, uh, because we know without the remission of sin, there is no uh, forgiveness. Without, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Uh, and so we knew that would have to happen. And so that was, that was delayed because there weren't enough priests that were sanctified sufficiently. Uh, and so they put it off to the second month. And then when he wrote to them, he, he, this is what he said. And I'm surprised. I'm going to be honest. I think if you sent a, this letter out to a bunch of people today, nobody would show up. Uh, but he wrote to them. And in the seventh verse, he said this, And be not like your fathers and like your brethren, which trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, wherefore, uh, who therefore gave them up to desolation. I don't think the day and age, if you wrote that letter, you'd get very many respondents. <laughs> there wouldn't be a whole lot of... Uh, there wouldn't be a whole lot of people that would uh, show up, as you see. Then he says, Now be not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord and enter into his sanctuary. This is talking about the process of repairing, isn't it? This is repairing the temple. This is repairing the altar. It's just, it's just repairing the building of God, and that's what we are, isn't it? Fitly joined together. The temple of God. That's what Paul said, wasn't it? He said, know ye not that you are the temple of God? Individually, yes. But more so, corporately. (laughs) Joined together in worship of God. The sanctified holy place, most holy place of God. And so we see here uh, that, uh, that that's, what had to be hap- that's what had to happen, that, that, the, that the sanctified, most holy place of God had to be, had to be re-consecrated uh, or re-sanctified. And so he says this to them, Be not stiff-necked like your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord, and enter into his sanctuary which he hath sanctified forever. At the feeding of the 5,000, the apostles said, send them away that they can get some food. Jesus said, don't send them away, feed them. (laughs) But we don't have any food, Jesus. Don't worry. There's a little boy here who's got a couple loaves and three fish. That's all I need. 
Just like there was a widow that just had a little bit of meal and a little oil on a cruise. <laughs> little is much when God is in it. Isn't that right? But then listen to what he says. He says, For if, for if ye turn again to the Lord your brethren your ch- and your children shall find compassion before them that led them captive so that they shall come again into this land. Listen to what he says. Listen to what Hezekiah says to them as he closes out his request that they come. At first, he doesn't, he doesn't gloss over their sins, does he? Even though we've been saved, we still commit sin. David's proof of that. Solomon's proof of that. Each one of us are proof of that if we were to shine a light in our own lives, wouldn't we? You never lose your temper? You never say something cross? You can tell me that, but I'm not going to believe it. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you And this gets to what we were talking about in Sunday school. This idea that God evolves over time. God never changes. One of the chief characteristics of God is He's immutable. I changeth not. If ye return to Him... Hezekiah wrote and said, If you repent to the Lord, then He will hear your prayers from heaven. And if we look at this verse in context, and I didn't have any idea this verse was in Sunday school literature this week, He'll hear from heaven, and He will heal your land, won't He? And we know which verse that is, Second Chronicles 7.14. We just looked at it, but my memory is fading me right at this moment if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and I'll hear from heaven I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land and so he's talking to this nation there and today that extrapolates out to his church that extrapolates out to his church we're going to have revival it's going to be because the Lord is in it and they came and they worshipped God didn't they so much so that I don't know that there was ever another Passover that was kept that was like that one. When they left, they tore down all the altars to the false gods. And, and they really worshiped God. And, and so that's the fourth point. If we want revival. Worship God as God. And not as just an imaginary thing. We know God is real. We've had an experience with God if we've been saved. Worship God as God. Life gets in the way, and it becomes very easy to get drugged down into the motions. But God wants the glory, doesn't He? God wants the preeminence. If we're going to worship Him, we should worship Him with our whole heart in spirit and in truth. And so that's my message this morning as we have revival. As we go through the week, 
Our desire should be that we have a restored fellowship with the true and living God. That any, any repairs to the temple of God that need to be made or to the altar of God, that they would be made fully. That we'd sanctify ourselves before we come into the presence of God. And then once we come into His presence, we worship God as God. That's what we need this week if we want revival. If we want lost people to get saved, we, we think that lost people are going to hear the gospel and that they are just going to be moved. But I have always contended, and I will always contend, it is unreasonable and irrational to believe that a lost person is going to move at the preaching of the Word of God when those that are supposed to be His saints don't. I, I just view it as a totally unreasonable premise. If it doesn't excite us, why would it excite them? And so I want to hear Jesus preached all week. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no life without Jesus Christ. But we need to rejoice in the preaching of God's Word, don't we? They did in Hezekiah's day. They rejoiced at the preaching of the Word of God. And so that's what I'd like to close out our, our sermon with. And I'd like to close our... I'd actually like to buck tradition a little bit, if that's all right with you, Brother Williams. We, I know we usually will close with a song and then we'll have prayer. But I would like for us to just come forth and let's close this service right now with an altar prayer as we get ready for our revival services to begin tonight. And then let's go out our own way. And let's take that and use it and come back tonight and be ready for God to revive us as only God can. <laughs>